this is probably the most important thing we can focus on. And, and since I realized that, I just couldn't shake that anymore. There was nothing else that even came close. And I feel like we all went through that journey and we all came to the same conclusion that this is the most urgent thing we could you know, spend the next 10 years on. Hi everyone, I'm happy to bring you a new episode today of the Leap Takers podcast where I'm interviewing up-and-coming European entrepreneurs, investors and shapers from various fields to retrace their journey of how they started their own company and to discover the insights, tips, tricks and advice they gathered so that you too can take the leap. I have another very exciting guest on the show today with Heidi Lindvall. She is one of the founders and the general partner at Pale Blue Dot. Pill Blue Dot is a seed stage, so very early stage, climate tech venture capital firm. So they invest in startups that are helping to reduce and reverse the effects of climate change and help preparing for a new world. Heidi co-founded two companies before Pill Blue Dot and has actually a background in media and human rights. She was also an active documentary filmmaker in the early stages of her career, which we will all talk about in this episode. I found this conversation very interesting, a lot to learn here for sure, and maybe it even inspires you to start working on a company that tackles one of the many challenges of climate change. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Heidi Lindvall. Hello, Heidi. Welcome to the Leap Takers podcast, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great. You could make the time. And I would like to start first with if you could just briefly introduce yourself to the audience and tell them about yourself and what you're currently working on. Sure. My name is Heidi Lindvall. I am currently a general partner at Pale Blue Dot, which is a climate tech fund based in southern Sweden. So I've been doing this for the past few months. And before that, I was uh, been running an accelerator. I've been an entrepreneur myself and... Uh, documentary filmmaker if we go back far enough so yeah that's what I'm doing right now that sounds like a very interesting career so far and I would like to start already with pale blue dot with the VC that you started and yeah could you just describe to the audience or maybe someone who's not that familiar with the VC world in general what is pale blue dot and what are you trying to achieve with the fund Sure. So Pale Blue Dot is a, a climate-based VC fund. Uh, it's a 53 million fund that we've raised from professional investors and institutional investors in order to invest in startups within the climate tech sector. And at the moment, it's 53 million that we've raised so far, and we're aiming to raise uh, or to finish at around 80 million at the end of the year. We invest in pre-seed and seed stage startups around Europe, uh, and we can do investments in the US as well. I would see ourselves as a pretty conventional VC in how we operate and, and what kind of profits we need to see, et cetera. But we invest in startups that do something positive for the climate. Now, it's pretty pretty vague in the sense that we you know, kind of do more of a back of the napkin calculation in terms of looking what the impact is on climate. But we do need to see that this is going to be a future positive company, essentially, when at that time of investment. 
And that there's three partners of us, myself, Humpus, and Joel, that started it together. Uh, we started planning it about a year ago, and then we fundraised. Within about six months, we were able to close our first target. And yeah, we've been running since June this year. We've made three investments that we've announced, and we have three more investments that we make in this month. So it's been really busy first three months for us, for sure. Yeah, that sounds great. And I really love the, the thesis and the climate focus that you have with Pale Blue Dot. And I would happily a bit later in this uh, conversation go a bit more into depth regarding Pale sure. Blue Dot. Before we get there, I was very curious to learn more about your personal background as well and how you got started or got into the whole startup and VC space in the first place. Yeah, was there any anything that you know caught your interest when you were younger or how did you first get in touch with the world of startups? So I'm originally from Finland, first of all, although I've lived abroad most of my life. So I've been in London for 12 years and US for a few years, Berlin for a while, and then uh, now in Sweden for two and a half years. And I think I've always been pretty entrepreneurial, but I didn't really consider business or this kind of avenue being something that I wanted to do. I, I kind of did a lot of other things when I was younger. But originally what happened is I studied film and TV to start with. And I then started a documentary film company together with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. And we didn't really want to work in the industry. So we thought, you know, let's see what we can do ourselves and just kind of travel around the world and make documentaries. And we started traveling and we started making documentaries on social and global issues, which was amazing. And I would recommend that to anyone, just kind of start doing your own thing as early as possible, just to figure out also what you want to do and what you're more interested in. So we did that just traveling to former war zones in Sri Lanka. We did a documentary on formerly abducted child soldiers in Uganda, press freedom in Guatemala. And we did that for a while. And then it actually kind of came from that. We then started feeling that our documentaries weren't really having the kind of impact that we wanted, especially, you know, being a small company ourselves, not really collaborating uh, with any big studios. We weren't really able to get them out in any meaningful way. And then we started thinking that, that what if it's the medium that's the problem? What if video could be better? And what if, what if we could get people to interact with the medium in a better way. So we started to, to think about what could be done with technology to make the medium better. And that's really where it started. Then we started looking for alternatives and we started looking for technologies that existed in the media space to tell stories in better ways. And after trying every single solution we found, we just found that there wasn't anything good enough on the market. And, and that's when we decided that we were gonna do it ourselves, that we're gonna start to build something that we would use ourselves so and this was back in 2012 um so that was after doing uh, a documentary film company uh, full-time for about three years and yeah that was the original source and, and then that's when we started what later became storygami which was an interactive video tool that allowed you it was a SaaS platform that allowed you to drag and drop essentially interactive elements on top of your videos but this was a very kind of classic story of we found a problem and no one else was solving it. So we solved it ourselves. And that's what kind of got me into the tech scene and really got me introduced to this space. Wow, very interesting. I, I was not so aware that you actually like directed these documentaries. Is there any way for people to check them out? Are they still available somewhere? 
Yeah, there are actually two of the documentaries that are on Vimeo. I think you can, I, I don't remember the address uh, now by heart, but I think if you just look at Kodak, which was the documentary film company, C-O-D-O-C, uh, Kodak Films, I think they're under. And uh, yeah, otherwise you can ask me on Twitter <laughs> or somewhere and then I can send a link, but two of them are live somewhere still. And I think all of the shorter ones have been taken down by now. <laughs> Not, not sure, actually. I haven't looked for a while. Well, I, I really like that, that background story and how you, through the passion for documentaries and filmmaking, you got into the, the startup space. And how did you approach this, let's say, more tech angle of what you did then at Storygami? What was your mm -hmm. role or how did you really get started there to build this SaaS solution? So we started by, uh, first of all, by trying to, you know, talk to people who were software developers and try to figure out like, how could this actually be built and trying to understand programs. And my, my partner, he started learning to code so that he could do some stuff himself. I did some short courses in JavaScript and after a while gave up because it was too hard for me. But it was really trying to surround ourselves with people who knew more about the technologies that we could use in order to do this and how this could actually be built. And we then started talking to customers pretty early in order to try to figure out what they would pay for. And then we actually ended up just doing a few pilot projects. So before we had even officially set up a company, we did some pilot projects with Virgin Media. Then we did some pilot projects with Al Jazeera as well. So we did like an interactive documentary that was very much kind of one-offs, but we made them in order to learn and in order to try to figure out, you know, whether this is it's worth making a full tool in order to make these kind of interactive documentaries. And I think it was really good to start selling your products before you really have it, uh, just in order to find out whether people are willing to pay for it and how much value it gives. And at this time, we didn't really know how they would use it. And we didn't really know what would work and what wouldn't, but we made sure to measure everything. So we said yes to pretty much everything they wanted us to build, but then we also measured everything. And then, you know, when we did our next project, we were able to say, oh, they also wanted this. However, we know why it doesn't work now. So that, that was kind of a really good way of getting started. And yeah, then we did that for a few years. And then when we started getting enough traction and some revenue, then we got our first investment, our first angel investors in. And then we we started building the SaaS platform and then we eventually went to 500 startups in Mountain View. So we went over to the US uh, to continue building the companies. And that's when it kind of started becoming a little bit more real in some way because we were able to employ more people and we were able to talk to bigger customers and really, really test the concept on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And what time would you consider the best time for a startup to think about raising outside money, like from angel investors or from seed VCs? So you mentioned you did this, this after a few years, once you got first revenues. Do you think that was the right decision or what would you say today, being an investor yourself, when is the right moment for companies to start looking for investors? Yeah, I actually, I think we did it exactly at the right time. I think you need to have proved something yourself. And, and I think the way we bootstrapped for a while and we kind of, you know, we kept our other jobs, which was our documentary film company at the time. So we were kind of doing both at the same time. Uh, for a while and we really wanted to see if this concept was worth pursuing before we jumped into that full time and i think uh, if you're able to do that then i think it's a really good idea to do that and, and i wouldn't really raise money before you've found that there is a problem and that their people are willing to pay for something of course there'll probably be many pivots still and there'll probably be many different iterations of 
the product, but just knowing that there is a space for something here and there's some interest, I think that's a good time to, to raise money. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think that's great advice. Now, after Storigami, what was your next step? There. So we then, after this, we're now in about 2015 that we were in the US. We did that for only about a year and a half after that, actually. So, you know, we raised some money, got some good clients in, but finally realized, we actually finally started, started to pivot and started to build a different platform, but weren't really able to raise enough money to make that work and for multiple reasons just weren't able to get that off the ground i actually came off of that whole experience not really knowing what i wanted to do or what i could do i think a lot of people who have built their own company afterwards don't really know what they're good at because i was a ceo of the company and i did a bit of everything i mean we were you know a most six, seven people. So I did a little bit of marketing and then a lot of sales and a lot of fundraising, but you know, you do HR and you do all of the admin stuff and accounting, the legals, like you do a bit of everything, but then you're also not an expert at anything. So I was trying to figure out what could I actually do? What value could I actually bring to anyone? Because I didn't really feel like any, you know, kind of conventional role tiles kind of fitted in with me. But I then thought that maybe I have learned enough that I can help others build companies. So that's essentially what I did. I went to work for the Open Data Institute as a startup program manager for a new uh, startup program called Data Pitch that they were setting up at the time. Uh, and, and that was a really good step for me because I got to you know, pick companies for a startup program and that we would invest 100,000 euros equity free in and also help build up kind of an accelerator program for them to scale. So that's what I went on to do. And then after that, I felt that I wanted to continue on that, but more, even more so in the startup scene. So I ended up moving to Sweden where I joined Fast Track Malmö, which was at the time run by Joel, who's, who's now my partner at Pale Blue Dot as well, and uh, to build uh, Fast Track Malmö, an accelerator, and then later also a micro fund. So that's what I was doing for the past, well, almost three years now since I came to Sweden. I think it's a very interesting background and it, it also shows a good track how you move from being an operator or startup founder into the VC and the investor space. And I think with starting at an accelerator, it, it was probably a good choice to, to learn about it and help startups as well. And I really like that path. Now talking about Pale Blue Dot and it's the main topic of this conversation. So how did you come up with the idea to start a climate tech focused VC fund? How did you get together and how was the idea born? So before I'm, I'm going to go back in time a little bit and give a little bit more context on what I was talking about before, sure. but essentially when I started doc doing documentaries on social and global issues, I first kind of thought that I wanted to work in the, in the charity sector, but I saw a lot of problems on the ground that I felt like weren't really solved so well by the charities that were there. And, and that's often because they were the people there became so dependent on these charities and then providing for them that I thought that there must be better models of solving some of these problems that I'm seeing on the ground. And I then realized when we started Storigami that technology was a really powerful tool that we had that we could use to solve some of the biggest problems that we're facing. And that's when I got really intrigued by that. And, and around that time, actually, just before we started Storigami, I did my master's in human rights. And I really started looking at how can we use technology to solve you know, human problems, essentially. And, and even though Storigami um, you know, really wasn't, I mean, it was, it was about educating people on certain problems and it's about kind of getting people to take action. 
it, it wasn't a very impact-driven startup, but I started looking at more of the how could you merge impact and profit in a really good way. And I really wanted to see more people who were looking at tech startups from an impact perspective come into the space. So that's the trajectory I then continued on, both at Data Pitch as well as at Fast Track Malna. And by that time, I kind of knew that I wanted to go into investment because I felt like if I, I, I've always been a pretty intuitive person and and I felt like I could probably help pick these people and these projects that can actually make a big difference. So I knew already when I came to Sweden that I would probably want to join a fund or start something with an investment after that. And I, and I spoke to Joel, my colleague at Fast Track Malmer, about that multiple times. Um, so Ever since I came to Sweden, we, we kind of had those conversations every now and then. And then Hump was the third partner. We used to have lunches every three weeks just discussing what's happening in the Malmö startup seed and, and what could be improved and so on. And then we have had a fourth friend who was also kind of part of those discussions early on. So, so there was us doing something together, I felt was pretty natural within investment. And we had a lot of discussions about what's needed, but nothing really ever kind of materialized out of those conversations before about just over a year ago now, I think it was in, in kind of April, May, that one of our, who's now our anchor investors, actually, who, who had invested in the micro fund that we were running previously, they said that they were looking to invest in a fund in Malmö. And that's where we started saying that, is this it? Is this our opportunity to set up a fund here? That, that should we really start looking into it? And then we had a lot of conversations about what it should be about. I knew we wanted to do something with an impact, but I also didn't really necessarily want to set up a more generic impact fund. And, you know, Humpus was at another VC at the time and he was trying to figure out what his next move was as well. And then Joel, who had been at Fast Track Malmö for the past three years and doing micro funds was also trying to figure out what he should kind of spend the next uh, 10 years on. And we discussed a lot of different alternatives, but I think it was Humpus that originally brought up climate and he was doing an event uh, on climate at the time. And he had really spent a lot of time just deep diving into the, into the topic and talking to a lot of experts in the area. And, and he was pitching this to us. And, and then we started reading a little bit more about it and started thinking about climate as specific kind of investment sector. And I think I then realized that, you know, I think it was when I was reading the IPCC report, the 2018 report, where they said that we have 12 years to reverse the trajectory of where we're going with, you know, and, and stay under 1.5 degree warming, that I kind of realized that this is so urgent and if you're going to set up a fund, which is a 10-year investment fund, this is probably the most important thing we can focus on. And, and since I realized that, I just couldn't shake that anymore. There was nothing else that even came close. And I feel like we all went through that journey and we all came to the same conclusion that this is the most urgent thing we could you know, spend the next 10 years on. And if we don't solve this and nothing else is going to be worth, there's not going to be anything else to save or solve anyway. So then it did feel like, like this is the, the only thing we can do. And, and after that, I feel like everything was pretty easy just to figure out what the fund was going to be like and, and what we wanted to do. We were pretty aligned on everything else. So once we uh, realized that it was going to be around climate. Yeah, I really like the story of how, how everything came together. And I agree with you. It, it's definitely a very urgent topic. And 
there was a nice illustration that I saw a few weeks ago on LinkedIn. I think that illustrated how fast we need to act to partially reverse still some of the effect or like what impact it has on the degree degrees of how much warmer it will get. And it is really urgent for sure. So I really love what you're doing. Yeah. How do you define climate tech in, in general for Pale Blue Dot? What are the areas you would invest in with the VC? So it, it's a really great question. And, and it's something that we constantly are asking ourselves as well. But at the moment, I would say that we are like a generic VC in the sense that we look for what we call VC fundable companies, companies where we can see you know a big enough exit, we can see 100 million ARR and we see kind of that potential scale and market, and we see a really strong team who are entrepreneurial, who can kind of scale this, et cetera. So all the same things a normal VC would, would, would look at, but with, with some kind of positive climate impact. That's, I think, the easiest way of explaining that, because I feel like a lot of people try to put us in the clean tech or green tech categories, but we can't necessarily, even if we'd want to, we can't necessarily invest in companies that are really high capex companies, for example, or you know some huge hardware where we don't see them going to market in the next 10 years because our fund is a 10-year fund and we need to see our exits within that time span. So this is why you know I would definitely see ourselves more as a generic VC than a clean tech fund. And we're focusing on software, but saying that it, they're still... You know, it's still pretty wide mandate. We can invest in anything, food, agriculture. We can invest in supply chain, logistics, looking at a lot of carbon accounting right now, a lot of different B2B SaaS products, some consumer apps. It's um, thinking what else are we currently looking at? Mobility, future cities. So we essentially, we have three categories. We say reverse, reduce, and prepare for a future. So anything that we can see reducing the impact of climate change, reversing the impact, actually sequestering carbon, et cetera, and then preparing for a new world. And that's really can be anything that we see, you know, we see water levels are going to rise. What is that going to mean for people? How do we have to build our cities for the future in order to prepare for that, for example? So it's it's pretty wide. And I, I don't think I know of all the areas we will invest in. I feel like this is what the startups are educating us on when they come with amazing pitches of things I had never even considered being enormous issues. So I'm very excited to just get to learn about this space more and more all the time. Mm, Yeah, that's one of the great parts about this job as well, too. You constantly learn about new things and new products and concepts. That's really cool. Sure. But you would say it's fair to say that the startups invest in, they have to have a tech component and it needs to be scalable to justify then the VC type of investment and the returns that need to come with it. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We do some deep tech, uh, but mainly mainly uh, software and, and we have to see the scalability on it for sure. Okay. So now let's say there are people in the audience who are working on something in that field. So you said Europe mainly as a geography and seed, right? Is there any other like kind of restrictions you have or what you specify your investment targets should be? Yeah. So Europe mainly, we have done some U.S. investments and we can do U.S. investments, but our focus is definitely on Europe. Seed and pre-seed, normally the tickets are from 200K to 2 million. So that's kind of our, our ticket size. And I would say that after seed, we want to have an ownership of about 10 to 15%, preferably closer to 15 
just to, to understand um, how we work. And we want to have a board seat uh, and we want to be really active and help startups where we can as well. So we're, you know, we have, we have Slack channels and WhatsApp channels with all of our startups and are, are trying to just you know, provide the value that we can with them. So we work really closely with them as well. But in terms of other restrictions, and no, not that I could think of, just the fact that they're far enough and, you know, have a team uh, and have someone driving this. And of course, when you invest this early, so much is about the team themselves and, and just seeing potential rather than needing to prove so much at an early stage. Yes, yes, for sure. Can you disclose anything about the public investments you did so far? What, what type of companies there are or, or are they not public yet? That's a great question. <laughs> we haven't, one of them went public with what they're doing last week, but I think I can speak about the first three actually. So one of them that used to be called 23 and just uh, changed their name to Overstory. They use satellite imagery to, to measure forests. So they work with utility companies to measure forests and prevent forest fires. Then we have Patch, which is a U.S.-based company that are essentially B2B2C helping um, companies offset micro offsets of purchases. And then we have Phytoform, which is a U.K. and U.S.-based company, actually, who are essentially building new crops for the future. Oh, that sounds very interesting. And I think it also helps the audience to better understand what type of companies uh, climate tech entails. So that sounds very sure. exciting. And I was also thinking about now, especially in this climate space, regulation probably has a big impact as well. And in yeah. Europe, you have the, the European Green Deal that is going mm -hmm. on that should help reduce carbon emissions, etc. Yeah. Do you think regulation is acting fast enough to also support startups or is it rather a, a hindering factor at the moment? I don't think it has been fast enough. I think there definitely will be a lot of catching up, but I also think it's a really great thing that it's coming in now, you know, better late than ever. Right? Yeah. And, and we do see a lot of opportunities from that. So I think a lot of countries are saying, oh, we're going to go carbon neutral by 2030. And they have no idea how to do that. And of course, that's a huge opportunity for startups. Uh, there's going to be a lot of really great businesses that are built due to these regulations and due to all these businesses having to completely change how they work and all of the governments having to change how they work. So we see this as a huge opportunity, but I think, of course, they have to work even faster uh, than they have previously. And, and, you know, we have a lot to do in order to actually start reversing uh, the trajectory that we are on. So in that sense, yeah, the more we can do faster, the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amazing what you're trying to do with Pale Blue Dot. So wishing you lots of success and that you uh, invest in great <laughs> companies that, that help the climate and the world. So I would <laughs> like to shift gears a little bit and ask about the learnings and advice you now mm -hmm. collected over the last few years as an entrepreneur, but also as an investor. And so first of all, it was very curious to learn your experience from raising a fund. Is there anything you can share for, let's say, emerging fund managers or, or people that want to raise a micro VC in Europe? Yeah, I've learned that it's in a way pretty similar to raising around as an entrepreneur in the sense that it's so much about your network and, and who you know and having good references and just kind of surrounding yourself with good people. I think Humpus, my partner, did probably 90%, if not more, of the fundraising and, and just having a great network that we could ask for intros from has been really, really valuable. And then also having great references 
like almost every LP then wants to talk to someone who's worked with us. And the fact that we have people that we have all invested in who can actually discuss what we're alike as investors has been really, really uh, useful and, and really, really important. And I don't even think I understood the importance of that before we came into this process. So that's definitely one thing. The other thing is, of course, it's not as easy for anyone to raise this fund. I mean, I think this is a network that, you know, we've all built a very long time. So coming into this without that would have been very, very hard and a whole different story. And I think we've been incredibly lucky to be able to lean on that network in order to race so quickly. So that's also understanding that what made this possible was a lot of luck and a lot of privilege as well. The other thing I would say, yeah, in many ways, it's so similar. It's so similar to a startup. The other thing is creating urgency. And, you know, with our LPs, we've discussed all these changes in regulations and in consumer behavior and how this trend towards climate and people are actually starting to take action. And I feel like a lot of LPs also felt that they don't want to be behind the curb. And we've actually had a lot of people come to us who have told us that they are actively looking at investing in a climate fund. And, you know, lucky for us, there haven't been many. There seems to be quite a lot popping up now, but there really haven't been many opportunities if you want to invest in a VC fund that does climate only in Europe. So that has also meant that we've gotten some intros to you know, LPs that we would otherwise never have gotten to speak with. So I think urgency and timing is also so crucial to actually jump on a trend when it's happening. And I think that's the same for, for every startup to kind of try to be opportunistic when, when there's a, a shift and there's a new market emerging. Those are probably my two key learnings of jumping on trends and, and uh, the importance of your network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree with both points. And I think also the climate topic, of course, is a very pressing issue and it yeah. seemed to help you. And I think you said six months you were fundraising. From what I hear, it's a quite quick fundraising process. Um, it takes other people a year or up to two years to raise a fund. Definitely. It was very, very quick. And, and we're very, very grateful that we were, are able to now, you know, work on this full time after planning it for just over a year. Mm -hmm. Great. And now also thinking about more the entrepreneurial listeners to the podcast, is there anything mm -hmm. specifically that you would tell now companies in, in, in your portfolio, any tips or resources you would recommend aspiring or founders to read that could help them in launching their startup or growing, let's say from a pre-seed seed phase to, to the next stage? Yeah, I think one of the things that I would probably advise people or not really advise people, but really make sure that you think about is just to think about what you can add to the industry and not just try to think about how to fit in. Because I feel like that's an issue. A lot of people feel like, oh, in order to build a tech company, I need to fit in and I need to have this skill set and I need to look like this and I need to have a team that does this. And I feel like we, you know, there's a lot of problems in the tech industry and there's a lot of huge solutions that we're going to need to find. And we're going to need a lot of different people from different backgrounds and with different thinking and different mindsets. And, you know, I feel like the more people we can get who are kind of able to be themselves and think about what can I add to this industry rather than how can I fit into this? Like, that's the better. So, so that's just one thing I, I 
you know, always encourage people to don't change to try to fit in, but try to figure out what you can add to it instead. And, and I think this is something that I went through myself because I, you know, I had a background in media and human rights. And even now, every now and then when I speak to people, they look at me a bit as an imposter, like, hold on, you're a VC and you did not work at one of the big fours and you did not do a degree in or an MBA or you work in economics. And I really think that's a huge strength because I'm looking at these deals differently and I have a different background. I went through different things and we have such great conversations because the different people that we are in our investment team as well. And I really, really would love to see just more people from different backgrounds come into this industry. So that's just one important thing that I feel like I went through and I hope that, that other people can try to feel, feel welcome and improve on as well in the future. Yeah. Thanks for this advice. I think it, it's very helpful for people to just be themselves and uh, kind of don't be shy to go into a field if they're really interested in it and want to make a change there. So I really like that. Yeah. Now I would like to go to one of my favorite parts of these interviews, and this is the rapid fire questions. So mm -hmm. I just ask you a few questions and you can just tell me your immediate thoughts. So first of all, what's a book that had a big personal impact on you and your life that you would recommend people to read? So I would say actually multiple of Richard Branson's autobiographies. I was very lucky to work close to Virgin and Richard Branson earlier time in my career. And one of the things that, for example, in his book, Screw Business as Usual, that really impressed me was the fact that I was able to start seeing business as not just a profit driven machine, but also somewhere where you can have a great impact and just looking at it from a different view. I think that's why originally when I was younger, turned me off from the whole business space is because it felt so cold and non-personal, but I felt like when I read Richard Branson's book and, and, and who he is a person and his family values and his you know, impact driven mindset that really made an impact on me. And it made me feel like, okay, maybe I can be an entrepreneur. Maybe I can build a profit driven business while still caring about all of these other things. And so that made a huge impact on me. I will also make sure to link to, to the book and to all the other things mm -hmm. you mentioned before in the show notes so people can check it out there as well. When it comes to climate tech or the whole space, are there any websites or resources that are your favorite place to stay up to date? What's happening? Yeah, so it's it's still pretty early. And, and to be honest, I find a lot of my kind of reading and information still from Twitter, just by like following a lot of people who discuss this space. But a few that I would mention is there's a podcast called My Climate Journey from Jason Jacobs, which I think is really great. There is actually a new newsletter that I read yesterday for the first time from a Michael Rubin Bozen, I think his name is, is a, a Danish person. I think it's called the Weekly Climate. Uh, and it was first issue, but it was very good. And then I know there's a newsletter by Tommy Lee, who's also an investor called The Breeze. So those are a few of the resources, but it's still pretty early. I, I wouldn't say that there's like one source where I get all of my information. It's currently just trying to, you know, having Google alerts and trying to read uh, articles coming out around the space and just looking on Twitter, seeing what the people are sharing and seeing what comes up. And what would you say is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that, that you've made so far? Not necessarily in money. It can also be of time or energy that you put into something. Do you have yeah. any thoughts on that? Yep. That was definitely Storigami. And that was definitely starting my own startup. Just the amount of stuff that I learned, just putting all of my 
you know, money, time and energy into this one thing for multiple years. And like I said, when I first came out of it, I didn't even realize how much I'd learned. But then when I went on the accelerator side and started helping other startups, I realized how much I'd gone through. And part of that was actually also going through 500 startups and going to Silicon Valley. And I felt like I sometimes say that for me, it was like a crash course in doing business in Silicon Valley, but it was a whole new world. Having been active in Berlin and, and London for the two, three years before that, I don't think I learned as much as I did during those four months uh, on 500 startups. So for me, it's definitely putting the time and energy and saying, you know, if I'm going to do a tech startup, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to learn as much as I can and really soak up the knowledge that I got on the way. And now if you could go back in time, <laughs> let's imagine that for a second, and you could tell your younger <laughs> self um, a piece of advice, let's say at the beginning of your career, after you finished your studies, uh, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, I'm going to echo a little bit about what I said earlier. So I would just say to not, don't let others make you feel like an imposter because you're you know, a woman in tech or you're non-technical or you come from a different background or, or you speak a different language or whatever it is. I feel like it's just you know, understand that you have as much right to be there as anyone else. And you are as important to this scene as anyone else's. So I feel like just getting that confidence in early on and realizing that you can really make a difference would have, would have helped a lot. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. To close, I always like to ask my guests a question related to the name of the podcast. So what does courage mean to you personally? Sure. So courage to me is being the change that you want to see, even when others don't want to see it and making yourself heard and showing up even when you're not welcome. That to me is courageous when you're, you know, you show up day after day, even if you don't feel like other people want to see you or you just keep voicing your opinion, even if they don't want to hear you. That requires some courage. Yeah, definitely. I think these were some great closing words. So with that, thank you so much, Heidi, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and I found it a very interesting conversation. So if people want to learn more about you and Pale Blue Dot, maybe you want to mention your Twitter handle or, or the website where they can find you and Pale Blue Dot. So our website is pale blue written out and then dot as an, an actual dot vc so paleblue.vc um and on twitter you can find us on paleblue.vc and me at just heidi lindvall at heidi lindvall so that's probably the best way awesome so i'll link to this as well in the show notes and then thank you so much again for coming on the show thank you all right thank you so much for listening to this episode you could do me a really big favor if you would just tell one of your friends about the leap takers podcast and recommend it or if you want to do even more quickly head over to the iTunes or Apple podcast store and give the Leap Takers podcast a five-star rating. This would really help me to get more visible and that I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. Thank you so much. Also, if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, just shoot me a message. You can find all my contact info on leaptakers.com or you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram where you can find me under Remo Keyboards or just follow the Leap Takers podcast directly on Instagram as well. So having said that, thanks again for listening and have a great week. Bye-bye.